is that on? <laughs> Hi, everybody. <clears throat> uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Dale, can I have a little more in-house volume, please? Test one, right? Yeah, that's better. Thank you. Matthew 6, 9. Let's uh, begin with prayer and um, let's thank him for our time together to hear his word and continue our study of this uh, very important um, aspect of our spiritual lives, which is prayer, and to uh, humble ourselves and be ready to, to learn. And so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for today and another day in your world and under your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for all that you have done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is only through him that we have life and that we can actually call you Father and know that we, with with confidence, are beneficiaries of your promises to have eternal life and to have you in the Trinity is the greatest blessing of all. To be able to go through life in a conversation with you and uh, not distant from you, uh, to have you with us and in us, and to be able to speak with you and hear from you. We are so very grateful. And through our Lord's Prayer that we're studying, may we take full advantage, each of us, of this opportunity that, that we have in life before we go home to see you. And that is in study and in prayer and in living the life that you have given us, which is eternal life. We ask, Father, through your Spirit, or in Christ's name, amen. So Jesus said, just again to read the Lord's Prayer, which I think we'll just continue to do, uh, and to see it as a whole, and that is that is the hope, although it just, uh, in studying it, it lends us to take one petition at a time, uh, and and to take them in order, and so, but but let's uh, we'll not lose um, the uh, let's not you know lose the forest while we study the trees, so to speak, and make sure we keep the whole prayer in mind. So the Lord said, uh, "Thus, therefore, you pray." That comes out in New American Standard is pray then in this way. He says, "You pray," and it's a command. Uh, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed or holy or sanctified be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're going to uh, uh, start today, and it'll probably be a couple of classes, is the will of God. Uh, and the will of God, as you would imagine, is quite a uh, major topic throughout the Scripture. Uh, the <clears throat> but the first three petitions all speak to the Father and are about the Lord and the glory of the Lord. And and puts us in a position where we have to evaluate ourselves in light of these three things, which would sum up uh, the spiritual life completely. And that is, first off, our Father who is in heaven, that is our position as children of God. That And we are so through the cross of Christ that each of us who have believed in Christ can call God our Father and... <clears throat> So, in the Lord's name is really in the address, our Father. Why is he our Father? Is because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is his Son. Holy be your name. That Again, in each, all three of these are going to be uh, desires for us as well as for ourselves and for others. That Not only do we want God's name to be holy in our own souls, in other words, set apart and wonderful, something that... You know, the Father, the name of the Father is the person of the Father, the attributes of the Father. And, you know, is that holy to us or is it not? And, and, uh, and so we, we seek His holiness, not just for ourselves but for others. And then for the kingdom, and as we saw uh, in a couple classes ago in Second Peter chapter 3, that we're to look for His kingdom and we are to... Uh, long for it. We are to expect it. And we'll see why that is. I'll remind you of that again. But the, <clears throat> you know, we might ask, since the kingdom's not coming in our age, meaning here on earth, and it's not. It can't come until after the rapture. 
And so we're not going to see it in our lifetime, not on earth. Uh, and so why should we long for it if it's not going to come in our age? And it, the solution to that is God wants you looking for it because it's, it's what you long for, what you desire, what you love, what you're looking at, what you really want, uh, really manages all other thoughts in your heart. You long for Him, you long for the Lord, you long for His kingdom, you long for His laws, you long for His way, you long for His truth, and every other thought is, is uh, uh, made to fit that desire. And it truly is what we desire the most. It kind of manages or, or uh, makes uh, the rest of our thoughts in our heart what they are. So as Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. You know, what do you really want? That's where your heart's going to be. And so when he gives us this prayer, he's forcing us to desire or not, but at least if we don't desire it, we're confronted with it. If we pray this every day, do we really seek God's kingdom? I mean, I'm saying it, but do I really you know, want it? And, and by the way, as I've said before, all of these petitions are imperative, meaning they're all commands. And that doesn't mean we're, we're like bossing God around, but it does mean that in a, a, a request in the form of a commandment is intense. It's an intense desire. So he's not just saying, well, you know, your, your kingdom sounds really cool, God, but know that I really desire it. And that's what he's forcing us to do. So your kingdom come, then your will be done. Again, and your will be done is probably the easiest one here to wrap our minds around. It's obeying God's will on earth as it is in heaven. So those are the first three. They all pertain to God. Uh, It's important that they're first. That uh, on earth as it is in heaven would apply to all three of them. The Father is in heaven. The kingdom is in heaven. Right now it is. And the will of God is done in heaven. And so the on earth as it is in heaven reveals to us and reminds us that there's a conflict between heaven and earth, and that conflict will continue until Christ makes it right. Uh, so therefore, we live in a conflicted world in which what is true in heaven, which is the everybody in heaven does God's will. All the angels, all the believers who are there now, all do God's will always. They all long to do God's will. That's what they do. His kingdom is there. The rules, the laws, the ways are in heaven absolutely perfect. The Father is there. And so, uh, you know, what's here on earth? And we realize that obviously earth is not in sync with heaven. And hopefully, and we desire and strive for this, that Heaven is in harmony with our self, and not just our inner self, but with our body, which we will see. So, uh, and then we have, give us this day our daily bread. Now we get to us. We also get to things that are material. Bread is natural. It's material. Is there a difference between our secular lives that is filled with work and eating and drinking and sleeping and uh, you know, this the stuff we have to do, much of it mundane. And that's here. Give us today our daily bread. Bread is going to refer to all things that are of our secular world. And what is there a difference? Jesus puts them both together, although he does in a way separate them. You have the first three petitions are about God and his kingdom and his will and heaven. And the last three are about us here on earth. But there's a bridge. As in heaven, so on earth. And we find, we will find, and we will see that this petition, give us this day, our daily bread, refers to our contentment with what God has given us materially. And also to use our material things, or actually I should say, to not see our secular lives as different from our spiritual lives. You know, we might say, well, there's my church life and my prayer life and my Bible study life, and then there's my work life and my 
you know, my life of eating and drinking and sleeping and whatever else I got to go to work and take care of the home and do my chores. And that, is that a separate life? Is there a spiritual life and a secular life? And actually, you never find that in the Bible. In fact, you find the opposite. Uh, Paul writes, do all things to the glory of God. Do And, and as Paul also writes, to uh, do our jobs is unto the Lord. Everything we do is unto him. And so what Jesus does for us here is kind of bring together, just so we don't get confused about this, that the heavenly life is not just in church. It's also in every aspect of our life. And what he's given us here is the, and we every day as we pray this, we're going to progress in our understanding of it, that our whole lives are really lived in heaven even though we're not there, here on earth, but as in heaven. So our church lives, our our natural lives, if you want to call it that, our secular lives, I think that's a better term, uh, are heavenly, as if what I do, what I do, the work that I do, the things that I say, the thoughts that I have, they're all heavenly. And so we have, give us our this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we, also for, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So therefore, prayer must be cultivated over time. Uh, it's more than words, as we've seen. It's a conversation with God, lifelong conversation with God, but it's still more than a conversation. It's a journey of discovery of God and of yourself. Uh, your... Uh, your conformity to these six petitions uh, in our lives and prayer is going to become, therefore, not just words that we say, but more so. The words are important, though, of course, but prayer at its best is an expression of our total lives. If we're people of faith, then we want these things. That'll affect the prayer life. It'll affect this prayer as well as other prayers. Uh, Prayer is really the result, the effectiveness of it, the enjoyment of it is a result of how we live. And they go hand in hand. And that would make sense. In a conversation with God, doesn't it, would really depend on your level of intelligence, your your level of um, personal contact with him. If you're going to be in conversation with someone, you know, what makes for a good conversation between two people? There's understanding, trust, uh, intellect, knowledge about the thing that you're talking about. And, you know, what does God want to talk about? What does he want us to talk about? And the Lord here really narrows it down, although under each of these petitions it could be very broad as a subject. But So our prayers are only as powerful as our lives. In other words, we pray as we live. We live well, we pray well. We pray well, we live well. Hence, this prayer never gets old, but only richer and more meaningful as we pray it because the discovery of these things, for instance, who is God, it's a a lifelong discovery. Who is he? What is his person? What are his attributes? Holy be your name. You know, the names of God. We had one class where we saw multiple names of God in the Old Testament. All of them had different meaning. And so that is a lifelong uh, journey, and that's what really what prayer is, a lifelong journey with God, a lifelong conversation with God, a lifelong converse, uh, sorry, discovery of who God is. And as you discover him, you discover yourself as well. So if there's a disparity between our prayers and our conduct, this prayer confronts us with it. Do we really desire kingdom, his kingdom, his will, his holiness? Are we really content with what we have? Do we have incredible shame about our sins or are we, uh, do we understand that we're forgiven and we live life under the grace and mercy of God, though we've made some mistakes in the past, we've made many mistakes in the past? Do we judge others or do we forgive others? Do we really navigate life well or do we constantly fall into temptation and the snare of the devil? We're confronted with it day in and day out. So, uh, we're going to focus on your will be done, <clears throat> but actually what we're going to really look at here is the fact that now in this age, as new creatures, 
the will of God can now be written on our hearts, and that's how it's, the, the imagery is given. It's a fulfillment of the new covenant. This was promised uh, in both by uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, promised that a new covenant would be given to Israel because they broke the old. The old covenant is a Mosaic law. We've all broken it. Uh, and a new covenant would be given that was unconditional and could not be broken. Part of, uh, there's many parts to it. The, the part of the new covenant is that uh, God's believers or God's saints would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's true in this age. Uh, <clears throat> and this other thing, that the law of God would be written on their hearts. And that's an image that means more than just knowing it. I mean, knowing his will or knowing his law. So your will be done is the final petition of the first three that seek to glorify God. So we have sanctified be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. Again, they're all commandments, which makes them very intense requests. Uh, and they're petitions for the believer who is praying and for himself and for others, both in the body of Christ and others even in the world. And so we pray this for unbelievers. We don't really pray it for unbelievers, but it's just that, you know, these, these petitions really speak to our desire. And if we desire the glory of God, that makes us excellent witnesses of the gospel. Uh, the, the, the desire for God's glory is greater motivation in, as a witness than it is in saving a sinner. In other words, if your whole motivation is to save a sinner, that's one thing. And I'm not saying that's a terrible motivation. That's fine. But <clears throat> if your desire is the glory of God, that is a greater motivation than saving a sinner. If we seek first God's glory, first and foremost, then the condition of the sinner will not matter to us. In other words, you might find yourself, and it's very true, it's easier to witness to some people than to others. You desire the salvation of some people more than others. You know, some people you're more compatible with. I mean, as unbelievers. And maybe it's easier to speak to them about the gospel. Whereas for some people, to speak of the gospel, they get very antagonistic. And, uh, <clears throat> but So if we have the other person in mind more than the glory of God, the behavior, what that person looks like, their lifestyle is going to be a factor in our, our effectiveness of our witness. And our witness shouldn't be like that. I mean, Christ died for all, not just for those who are you know, attractive or compatible or easy, amenable to a conversation. And therefore, we have to desire God's glory more than anything. And it's the only way by which to fulfill this life that we've been given to fulfill the goals of it, the purpose of it, is to desire. And that's why Jesus starts with the first petition is, holy be your name. It's the first and foremost that we desire to glorify God more than anything. If we look at people as our source of happiness, joy, and contentment, who they are, their behavior, and so on, then, you know, it's, if they're good people, it's okay for a little while, but even good people will let you down and let all of us down. We're all going to let each other down because we're sinners. But when you desire the glory of God more than anything, then the, the actions of the people, whether they're having a good day or bad, kind of fade away behind what you desire. I desire God to be glorified. And hence you will witness. Hence you will speak truth. Hence you will be gentle. Why? Because you prefer to glorify him. It's not about the person. It's about the Lord. So this petition, your will be done, doesn't need much explanation, but it will take us a bit to just see uh, the Greek word thelema. It means will, uh, desire. Uh, it can be, as you would expect, it can be used in a positive way or a negative way. You can desire, uh, you can fall under the will of the flesh, you can fall under the will of God. Same word would be used. Uh, <clears throat> but to see it here, actually in its sequence, uh, is also interesting. It's, it's last out of the first three 
Because if we desire to revere the Father as holy and we long for his kingdom, then we'll deeply desire to obey his will. Say, so if you say, if if you don't care about the holiness of the Father or know nothing about a kingdom that has laws and, and ways and a manner to it, a lifestyle to it, and then you run right to obedience when you're given these commands, you know, you don't really know the purpose of them. They're just things to do. Things I ought to do and things I, I ought not to do. Like children, they don't really know why the rules are the way that they are. You know, a child says, why can't I eat all the candy I want? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to clean? Why do I have to pick up? Why do I have to do my homework? Why do I have to have manners? doesn't make any sense. Who made up all these rules? What they don't understand is that the rules have a purpose in maturity. And the same is true here. If, if we don't have the first two petitions known, then the obedience to the will of God just becomes you know, a list, a laundry list of things to do and not to do. If we understand that the things that we do and we don't do, go back to the first petition, glorify the Father. Go back to the second petition, are about his kingdom, which is the final goal of all humanity, of all history, is God's kingdom on earth, amongst men, with men, filled with men, and a king who is a God-man. Then, and we, when we see that, and then we see that the rules of this kingdom we have here now to do ourselves, then it becomes quite motivating, and it brings great glory to God. So uh, then, at the end of that, at the end of the third petition, it says, "On earth as it is in heaven," and that would apply to all the first three petitions in heaven. And there's something wonderful here. It's almost mystical, but it's not because it's a reality. Mystical is more reserved for like, uh, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, Mythology. Uh, You know, mythology has a lot of mysticism in it. And they're wonderful stories. I I just, I love mythology. But it's not all that real. I say all that real. It's not real at all. But some of the principles that they take are real. I saw somebody today that's a a family member of a friend. I go on Facebook maybe like twice a week, sometimes once a week. But uh, anyway, this person who had gotten into a conversation with prior, uh, this person has been brought up in a very doctrinal, godly family. And uh, this person, she, all right, I just gave away the gender. It doesn't matter. You don't know her. Uh, she's young and uh, rejects the principles of the Bible for her, you know, for her own way that she goes. And she's pretty self-acclaimed, smart, and guru-like and all of that. And so uh, she started reading a particular book, and this book is about gaining inner peace and and, uh, gaining prosperity in life. And uh, she said, you know, I read, I read a little of this, and then she posted on Facebook, here are the, all the points of how to be, you know, the, the real you from this book. And every one of them are biblical, just without God. You know, forgiveness, uh, forgiveness of self, uh, there was, um, you know, there were all kinds of things. In every one of them I looked, I, and I almost replied, I was going to just tack a verse Unto every one of those points, but then it just would have been, you know, people don't listen anyway. But um, yeah, maybe I'll do it anyway. See what happens. Usually, it all blows up, and then there's a, a 300 line back and forth conversation that goes all the way down. And the reason why I don't do it is it just distracts me. I don't have time for that. Um, you know, it, the the world does promise all of this, yet without God. And in this prayer, it's Father, it's not, it's not just, all right, follow these rules. Pray about following rules, the right rules. It's not about that. It is about God himself and our relationship to him. Uh, so go to Hebrews. I didn't tell you that. Hebrews 11, verse 13. In heaven, 
The holiness of God is revered. The kingdom of God envelops everything. The will of God is done by all. And God is praised. And I'm glad I thought of that example. Because what if man could, and he can't, you know, as I, I was, I was reading this list of principles uh, that were put up by this person. I thought, well, you know, that's all fine and good, but if you don't have a relationship with God, you might say forgiveness, right? People are going to hurt you and let you down. How forgiving are you going to be if you don't have a relationship with God? Won't there be a limit to your forgiveness? And there would be a vast one. Uh, <clears throat> how about your self-acceptance? You know, we're all flawed. We all would like to be better than we are. How are you going to find peace if you don't have a relationship with the Almighty? And you're not going to. No one ever has. Ever. Uh, And uh, therefore, you know, in heaven, we have this worship of God. In Revelation 4 and 5, after it's really the opening of the, the beginning of what the events of the tribulation, we find... The, the 24 elders, the four crazy creatures, I like to call them, and, uh, and you know all the angels of heaven, and they're singing praise to God over and over. And without that, we have nothing. Uh, so, we pray, for instance... For the Father, so it, talking about heaven, right? On earth as it is in heaven. The will of God is in heaven. It's always obeyed in heaven. The kingdom of God is adored and lived in in its ways and its laws in heaven. God is praised in heaven. The things that should be, that are of all goodness, that will eventually be here on earth, are in heaven. But we're not in heaven. We're not there. Someday we will be. But yet, we're to long for the ways of heaven to be true here. And we say, God, well, that's ridiculous. Unless you bring your kingdom, it's not going to be that way here. And it won't be that way here in, say, like the halls of Congress or in the, or in the Kremlin or wherever, you know, wherever governments are, universities are, and secularism is. You know, are people all going to someday on their own say, you know what, the laws of God are the way we always should have done it and let's just all convert to the laws of God and let's all just do that. And it's not going to happen. But what is going to happen is in individual hearts, the finger of God, and, and however he does it, that people are going to be touched by God. You know, I'm fascinated by uh, this. I was reading some history of, of um, you know, uh, right now I'm reading, reading, listening to a history of, of Russia. And it's just fascinating. These, these people that, uh, that we know of, at least in history, that there'd be two people and they're brought up in the same house, the same family, the same situation. And one becomes a lover of God and the other just thinks it's all nonsense. And they're, they're both exposed to the exact same thing. What in the world is the difference? And you, you really can't tell. And uh, for those who have been uh, called, you know, and those are the ones who have believed in the gospel. We're not double predestinationists here. But for those who have believed the gospel of their own free will, heaven is open to them. Right? It's the, the gates of heaven are thrown open. And so here on earth, we can now in our in ourselves behold that which is heavenly. And, and what is heavenly is the holiness of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God. They're all in heaven. Now think about it. Can the kingdom of God be in me? Absolutely. Actually, you're a member of it. Colossians 1.13, we've all been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and that means that in me, the ki- what, what is the kingdom? I mean, is it buildings and stuff? Eventually it will be. There's going to be a whole, there's going to be a whole brand new temple here on earth during, during the millennial reign. It's not going to look like the old temple at all, but it will be here. 
Uh, so, but for us, no, and it's not a building, uh, it's not even a church building. But the laws of that kingdom, the way of that kingdom, the glory of that kingdom, the laws especially, uh, can definitely and should be in my heart. How about the holiness of the Father? Most definitely. I can revere God as holy. I, because of the Holy Spirit, all of this word that glorifies God and speaks of his holiness is open to me. And in fact, it's so open to me that this can be written on my heart. From the page of Scripture, written in my heart. And what that means is, that imagery, means that it flows in my blood. That it becomes a part of me. Uh, like in your personality, there's parts of you that are you. And people who know you well know those parts. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. But take, for instance, the things that you like. Certain foods. Certain places. Certain people. You know, certain uh, hobbies or whatever. Things you like to look at. Uh, those are a part of you. right? They're a part of your personality. And what the word written in our heart means is that the word will become, the very truths and laws of the word of God will become a part of our very personality. So it becomes, it's far deeper than just knowing them and then saying to myself, well, I know this rule, I should follow it. And that's okay, but that's more of an Old Testament thing. Whereas I know this rule, here's a rule in the Mosaic Law, and I must follow it. But rather than that, what we have is this rule, not only do I know it, it's a part of me. Of course I follow it, because that's who I am. And that's a supernatural process. By, by you read this word, or hear this word, or study this word, and the Holy Spirit, you put your faith in it, you say, you know what, that is very real, and it's very true, and the Holy Spirit it does what he does. To etch that on your heart. And then the kingdom of God starts to become etched on your heart. Because its laws are. And then the way of the kingdom, all of a sudden everything that's happening here on this earth kind of gets a little less important. You know, who gets elected, who's winning this, who's getting that. Who's getting away with this? Who's getting, you know, the Lord has all of that under control. I long for my, you know, for us as believers, we long for our families, for our communities, for our church, for our nation even. But not that, you know, is our concern that everybody gets richer? Not so much. But that people come to know the Lord, which is the only true riches. And so when we pray for instance, for his kingdom to come, as we saw in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it says, uh, Peter writes, looking for, 2 Peter 3, 12, he writes, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, that's the second coming. In context, it's very clear that Peter here is writing about the second coming. Why would we be looking for it if we're going to be raptured first anyway? And that is because whatever you're looking for, whatever you're desiring, is what is going to truly mold your thought process. It's going to change you. And that's what the Lord is after here. Look at Hebrews 11.13. All these died in faith. Who are these? Well, they're uh, starting with uh, Abel, is it first? That uh, and Enoch and Abraham and on and on. That these are uh, heroes or saints of the Old Testament. Going through is Moses in this part first. We got Abraham and Sarah right before this, um, and Isaac. And it says all of these died in faith. All right, they, these were those who were faithful. As uh, if you go back to Hebrews 11:1, 1, it says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval." So, what is this about? And the list is is a pretty long list. Then when he gets to the end, he does a adds more names in a sort of summary. 
that these are people in the Old Testament, men and women, who by faith in what God said, they lived a certain way. Right? Abraham. I was reading today about Abraham's. I, you know, you know that passage. It's in Genesis 18 where uh, God tells Abraham, "I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah," and Abraham says, "Well, God, before you do that, because his nephew Lot lives there, what if there's 50 righteous there? Will you destroy it if there are 50 righteous?" And God says, "No." And then Abraham says, "Well, hold on. What if there's 45?" And then he goes to 40. And then he goes to 30. And then he goes to 20. And then he gets down to 10. And it's really a prayer. He's going back and forth with God in prayer. And, you know, he's kind of evolving in his prayer. You know, he, Abraham wasn't really, he's the first Jew. So we could say he Jewed him down from 50 to 10. And, and, and God's, yeah, and unfortunately there weren't 10. And Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Uh, why did Abraham act in the way that he did, as opposed to Lot, who did not. You know, what was the difference between, say, Jacob and Esau? Or between uh, um, Isaac and Ishmael? What was the difference? Why do you think God keeps giving us these pairs throughout throughout the beginning of the story to show us where one is opposed to the other, and one of them has faith? And because of that faith, they don't do nothing because of that faith they act. So if again you look at verse 13, Hebrews 11:13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. You see they didn't what promises hadn't they received? was promised to Abraham that he would have all of that land that the Jews never got. Still, even at their height under Solomon, they did not conquer all the land that God had promised them. I mean, it's really the promise of the kingdom of God in Israel on earth. They hadn't seen it. So it says, again in verse 14, those who say such things, meaning their belief in the kingdom to come, it is clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country for which they, from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, you know, where does Abraham come from? From Ur. Did he want to go back there? He never did. When Israel is released from Egypt, you know, I know the, the, the unfaithful want to go back, but the faithful press on to the promised land. So it says in verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A city. And we find out later on, this is the new Jerusalem. Uh, And where is it? It is heavenly. As they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Now, we're told, your king, we pray, your kingdom come. This Though we're not going to see it in our lifetime, God is, or Jesus is, uh, making us, if we pray, and if we pray this with sincerity and earnestness, that we are going to desire a kingdom that is not of this world. And in that kingdom, there are laws and ways that are also not of this world. But there are laws and ways, that next petition, that are the will of God. So, again, if the kingdom isn't coming in our lifetime, why long for it? This is something that I, I can't emphasize enough for us. If the kingdom isn't coming before the rapture, why long for it? Because, uh, what we love and desire, here's the reason, and I've said it and I'm going to say it again, what we love and desire rules over the entirety of our thought. Jesus wants us longing for not this world, but for heaven. But, He also wants us living in this world properly and not ignoring the things in this world. So we do God's will. What we love and desire rules over the entirety of our thoughts. If we long for God's kingdom, for the holiness of the Father to be our reality, for his will to be our life, then our thoughts will be filled with the scent and life of heaven. 
And who doesn't want that? Now, this is if we're struggling with things, and all of us are at some in some level, that this is how you find the way to overcome. It is to desire the things of God more than the things of this earth, which are real things. The things of this earth, as Peter said in that same chapter, in Second Peter chapter 3, are going to be burned up. The things of this earth are temporary, while the things of heaven are eternal. And those eternal things can fill up our lives. So you imagine a believer walking around in this earth. So say someone who's gone to heaven, seen it all, took it all in, and said, wow, this is my future home, and then God sends them back to earth. You know, kind of like a Lazarus experience where you already died. He's four days. He's, you know, somewhere in the earth. And then he's brought back. How do you think Lazarus lived the life? Do you think he lived it exactly the same as he did before he died the first time? I mean, come on. His whole perspective would have been completely changed. His thoughts, what he loved, what he looked at, what occupied his time, completely different. And this is what God wants for us. Except he doesn't want us to die and come back first. He wants us to do it by faith. So the kingdom of God can be a reality filling our inner selves, which would make our lives, which would make our walking through our lives actually quite heavenly. And this, this has got to be, this is, it's not got to be, it is. It is the best life that anyone by far could live. It is a life that I'm sure few have lived in the history of mankind. And yet, if we know of it, we know that we have, through the Word and the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit within, we have the Word of God, we have our position as sons of God in union with Christ. Uh, on and on it goes. The blessings and assets that we possess, these, this should be something that we should be reaching for and grabbing for on a daily basis. So, look, go to Hebrews 10:14. Hebrews 10:14 For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And notice that in the context of Hebrews 10, the, the writer of Hebrews brings up the fact that in Israel animal sacrifices day in day out uh, on the day of atonement, uh, the animals are offered for the priest and then for all the people for all the sins and it's every year, it's every day that blood is spilt. Uh, on the altar, but then there's one who comes, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the cross, it's one offering, not multiple, one. He only has to do it once, and so for by, again, verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, that's the same word, exactly, uh, uh, this is probably the adjective, but the be holy, that's the same root word, hagiazo. It means to be sanctified. It means to be a saint. Uh, we, 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 in our prayer, say, Father, your name be holy. And we see here that by the offering of Christ, all of us have been made holy. Right? So we are sanctified. And that's our position in Christ. All of us. Everybody who's believed in Christ is sanctified. And that can't change because it's one offering for all time. So our sins, our failures, all of that, we have to deal with it. They, they hurt us. They hurt a lot of things. But what it can't hurt, can't touch, is your position in Christ as one who is sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so, as such, and then verse 15, because we're sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. Why does the Holy Spirit testify to us? It's because he is in us, and it is his ministry to teach us. And he has uh, one, well, really two, but they're the same. What does the Holy Spirit, what's his job to teach us? What is the main thing that he is to teach us? And it's in John 16. The Lord said it the night before he died, that the Holy Spirit is to teach us about him, about Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said, all that the Father has are mine. So when the, the Holy Spirit within us, his main goal is to teach us who is the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the name Right? Every aspect of him, every character trait,
freight, everything he loves and hates and, and all of that to teach us about him. And then the Lord said, what I am is the same as what the Father is. And so we learn of the Lord, we learn of the Father. And that is what the Holy Spirit is testifying to us. Now, what he testifies to us because we're in this age, sanctified, set apart unto God, filled with the, or indwelt by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, that the, this information about the Father is more than information. It becomes written on our hearts and our minds. And when that is true, the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father become a part of my, my DNA flowing in my veins. And it's a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. When That's why it's so important that when you learn and hear the Word of God, that as you learn it by faith, the Holy Spirit is taking that Word and making it real. And so very real that you, like eating food. When you eat food, it becomes a part of your body. And, but this, there's always waste when we eat food because we're in an imperfect world and imperfect bodies. But when we metabolize, so to speak, the Word of God, that there's no waste. There's no leftover. So again, verse 14, For by one offering is perfected for all time those who are sanctified, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And that comes right out of Jeremiah 31. And that is the new covenant which Jesus said when he handed us the cup, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, remember me. And this covenant Right? This is not laws written on our heart and on our minds is not us just memorizing them. This is actually where they become a part of our very nature. <clears throat> and then he says, he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Again, a part of the new covenant. So for those who are sanctified, our sins and our lawless deeds are remembered by God. Of course he knows them, but he's not going to judge us for them we will reap what we sow that doesn't mean we won't we all know that we're all old enough in this room to know that that we reap what we sow but god is not going to judge us and so we will remember there's their lawless deeds i will remember no more now where there is forgiveness of these things in verse 18 there is no longer any offering for sin so that takes us back to verse 14 he died once and since in all of those animal sacrifices, there was a covering, so to speak, of sin, a kind of putting it off until Christ came, but not real true forgiveness. But now, because of Christ, we are truly and forever forgiven of all sin. And so that's why he says, where there is forgiveness, there's no longer an offering for sin. So it's done. Jesus has done it. And you and I are sanctified and forgiven. And then, on top of that, you know, to be able to say to ourselves, well, I'm not going to be judged by the Father anymore, that is wonderful. Uh, what is going to be described here in Hebrews is that death is the result of sin, and death is awful. Uh, and I'm, have through Christ has defeated death for me. And so I no longer have to be afraid of that. If I'm not afraid of death, I'm not really afraid of anything. And so God has truly set me free. So once I'm free, all right, I'm free. I'm not going to be judged. I'm justified. I'm sanctified. I'm made righteous. All of this done by Christ, given to me by faith. I'm free. But free to do what? And that's what freedom comes with. Now, I, could, I guess in certain situations in the world, freedom could just be, well, it is. Uh, not just in certain situations, but freedom is wasted. People have freedom and they don't realize how precious it is. Um, I would think if you were locked up in a prison uh, in solitary confinement for some time and then you were released 
and you, you weren't expecting your freedom, but then you got it. Uh, I would think you would do something, you know, at least hoot and holler or something. I don't know. But do something. You know, freedom is truly given for us to do. And that is what this our prayer gets us to or is about. Is that in our fruit, our freedom, sorry, that we now have uh, opportunity. These doors are wide open for us to walk a path that Christ set for us. Uh, and it's a path that only goes through the kingdom of God. And though the kingdom of God's not here, but the path is a way. And in, in this very chapter, if you look at uh, verse 19, look at Hebrews 10:19, right? That's a very next verse. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, right? Nobody goes in the holy place except the high priest once a year. But now, through the sacrifice of the Lord, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. This new and living way. The word way, hados, in Greek, it means a road or a highway. And so we have this new and living highway, and the door to that, or the entrance, has been... um, inaugurated for us by Christ. And that's our freedom, is to walk on this highway and to discover the holiness of the Lord, the kingdom of the Lord, the will of the Lord, and heaven itself on earth. Not physically, but in my heart, on my mind, in my heart, in my way, in my thinking, even in what I say and do. I mean, I might as well be there. Oh, I, and we long to be there. This, uh, Paul writes that in Romans chapter 8, that we groan in these bodies and we long for our redemption, which is our, our promotion to heaven. And until that time, this is what we have. And what we have is incredible. It's marvelous. <clears throat> so again, uh, the law of God written on our minds and hearts is an image that means that God's law becomes a part of our inner selves, our identity, and our personality. And this, when, when it does, you do the will of God instinctively, spontaneously. It is more than known, but by faith and the Holy Spirit, the truth and the laws of God are just as much a part of us as our DNA, as our preferences, as, as our very selves. All right, so the next part to this is as follows. That we cannot obey God's will unless we're forgiven and cleansed from sin. And maybe we know this, but it's, uh, it, it needs to be reiterated and, and known because to do the will of the Father is a privilege. Uh, it's not a burden. Now, we know that the laws of God can become burdensome. They feel burdensome. And we're told that as we mature, they're not to be burdensome. So how do we get across that fence, if you will, or that gully where we're, you know, go from the fact that the laws of God and the ways of God, the will of God is burdensome to something that I, I love to do. In other words, when I get up in the morning, I can't wait to start to do God's will. And which has eternal ramifications, which is a part of the kingdom, which is the desire that pleases the Father. I'm just taking the three petitions together and that my life would be one of great joy that has eternal impact. And that would be this discovery of of, um, these three petitions at the first part of this prayer. Uh, We can't call God Father without being cleansed. We just can't. We have to be forgiven and cleansed from all sin. And this would, therefore, we would understand and, and remember every day to be grateful. Just to be able to call God Father. 
I'll be grateful if I get money or this or that. No, no, no. The fact that I can call Father, God Father, I am grateful. And that's what we have to understand. And in that, we kind of have to understand what the lake of fire is. Not that I'm going to do that, a doctrine on that. Last time I taught that, all I did was get depressed for a month. But um, it's we have to understand, you know, what are the wages of sin? We'll just talk about it a little bit tomorrow. What are the wages of sin? What have I been delivered from that I came so close to, really? And it's something that the human race, and, and even us as believers, we don't want to talk about it too much because it's, it's horrendous. It's terrible. Death is terrible. For a believer, death is a promotion. We long for it. But for the unbeliever, death is judgment. And judgment means lake of fire. And what lake of fire is, is separation from God forever. And that is awful. And I've been delivered from that. You say, why God do that? Well, God is, God is more pure and holy than you and I can possibly imagine. We think we know what holiness is. We don't. We have a, you know, a slight, slight snapshot of it. We know what we long to be. We know what the commandments are. We know that things like love and forgiveness and faithfulness and goodness and charity, all of those things are holy. But do we really know God's holiness? And I think in this life we'll never even come close. We'll get closer, but I don't think we're going to get close. But um, that is why sin is such an affront to him and why its penalty is death. Right? This is always from the view. When God said, you eat of that tree, what did he say? You're going to die. And that was it, that you were going to die. When they ate, they didn't die. But they were separated from God in the garden. Uh, so, this we see that death is the, uh, to mankind, death is the sentence of sin. And so Jesus comes and dies in our place. And, you know, this the death that Jesus went through is something, again, in our lifetime, we couldn't... As, as brilliant as God's holiness is, is probably how painful the cross was to the Lord. And I don't mean physically. It definitely was physically incredibly painful. The Romans made it that way. But um, in, his, in his heart, in his soul... To be judged for the sins of the whole world, we can't. Someone who's holy forever, and in no way did commit any sin, was guilty of nothing, and yet became the guilt of us all, everybody. And it's incredible. It's nothing. And so, we need to see the as manifestly dark and horrible they are. You know, that we'd rather not really look at. We need to look at them somewhat because we need to see what we've been delivered from. And when we know what we're delivered from, and we could say, like, look, this new and living way has been open for you because he did that. This life is open to you. This freedom is open to you because he did that. You can call God Father because he did that. You can pray to the Father on a daily basis because he did that. And what the, the scripture is, we'll stay right here in Hebrews. Hebrews does it beautifully. The death and blood of our Lord that made it possible. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the this teaching that our Lord gave us on prayer. Thank you for the rest of the scripture that opens it up to us. The many principles of things that are eternal and invisible, yet that we through your spirit, can see and behold and put our faith in and not just know of them, but to actually have them become a part of our very lives, of our very fabric, and to live them, to have a life that is heaven-filled. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.